trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Let me tell you what this show is. It's a place where people can turn for credible, nonpartisan, non-agendized information. Actually, I take that back. I do have an agenda. My agenda is to encourage people to think for themselves and not be spoon-fed what they should think or talking points from other media sources, including me. So, I guess if, if I had to sum it up in a nutshell, my goal here is to brainwash my audience into thinking for themselves. It's part of a larger conspiracy I'm part of to take over the world and then leave everybody alone. Yeah, it's uh, the pro-freedom conspiracy. You're welcome to join us if you'd like, but I uh, thought you should know where I stand uh, before I go any further. I do have some great sponsors who make this program possible. They include my good friends at MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, which, by the way, is also located in St. George. Sewing and Quilting Center, huh, another coincidence, located in St. George, Utah. And GovernYourIncome.com. So, you have no doubt heard a lot about the alleged threats to our democracy recently, especially over the last year or so. Got a great article here from J. Peter Zane, rather, who has noticed that the ones who are shouting the loudest about democracy, strangely, are the very same ones working overtime to subvert it for their own political goals. Now, I try to steer clear of partisan, you know, the partisan back and forth, but in this case, I think we're going to have to go ahead and delve into some partisan politics. And this is the Democrats' problem with democracy. This article says Democrats have challenged the legitimacy of every presidential election they've lost this millennium. Now, you may have forgotten this since apparently time started with the election of 2020, but they blamed a Supreme Court, a corrupt Supreme Court, for their defeat in 2000, crooked voting machines in 2004, and then Russian interference in 2016, sparking a years-long collusion hoax to kneecap Donald Trump's presidency. But now, as President Biden's poll numbers tank, His legislative agenda falters and his party's 2022 prospects look increasingly grim. They and their media allies are adding a new twist to the tactic. They're challenging elections before they happen. Now, they kind of did this back in 2016, but nobody seriously believed Trump would win. Come on, it wasn't that long ago. Nobody believed it. They told us over and over it couldn't happen. It'll never happen. But Barack Obama assured us that's not going to happen. And then it did. And the, uh, well, let's just say the temper tantrums were epic, to put it mildly. This article points out how prestigious news outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, NPR, and also uh, the uh, New York Review of Books warned that American democracy is under siege. With headlines ripped straight from Democratic Party talking points, they argue the Republicans are planning a two-pronged coup to seize power in 2022 and beyond. Step one, they say, is a series of election laws being passed by GOP state legislatures designed to thwart the will of the people. 
And if I could just translate that, at least as I understand it, laws which are designed to make it harder to cheat or to otherwise uh, manipulate the results of elections. Why, that would thwart the will of the people, as long as it doesn't go our way. You know, <laughs> okay, that's if that's what you want to say. Now, in this article, the author says, anyone who's bothered to read these pieces of legislation, which modify but still maintain things like early voting, mail-in voting, and other open ballot measures, knows that their impact will be negligible. But that hasn't stopped Biden and others from describing them as the Jim Crow in the 21st century. Now, this is the same argument they made for years about voter ID laws, which studies show, and by the way, there's a link here that you can, you can read this for yourself, do not suppress minority turnout. Further claims that the laws will allow state legislators to pick the winners despite the tallies is also a fabrication. Now, the intent of this argument is clear. It's to cast doubt on the legitimacy of all Republican victories. That is, that it's being made by the same people who relentlessly and correctly assail Trump's claims that he won the 2020 election demonstrates their bad faith. The second prong of their coup narrative is even more invidious, though. In their telling, the January 6th assault on the Capitol was just a test run for for Republicans to violently seize power if their plans to rig the elections fail. Now, the author here says, look, January 6th was indeed a dark day for American history. It was a criminal riot stoked by a troubled president. Now, I disagree with the, the author on this. I don't think Trump stoked it. And actually, the more information that comes out, it looks like the government had a real hand in any violence that happened. In fact, the only violence that really took anybody's life was the the violence at the hands of a Capitol Police officer who shot dead Ashley Babbitt, an unarmed protester who made the mistake of trying to crawl through a broken window at the behest of another protester, (coughs) protester by the name of John Sullivan. Nevertheless, it was not an insurrection. The perpetrators were unarmed, for one thing. Reuters found that the FBI has scant evidence that the riot was an organized plot to topple the government. And we can trust the authority of our own eyes to see the absurdity of claims that January 6th was worse than 9-11. Now, the writer who says, I'm almost, almost tempted to say no reasonable person could embrace the coup fantasies advanced by the left. And while there's almost certainly a cynical partisan aspect to these arguments... Proponents believe they will help their cause, and the truly frightening thing here is that many of them are sincere. Many honestly believe the American right is a hotbed of violent hatred bent on gaining control of the nation, as the brown shirts did in Germany in the early 1930s, because to their mind, Trump is only the outward symbol of a cultural cancer, although NPR did compare him to Hitler in a recent report. Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland recently summarized this view in The New Yorker saying January 6th was not the final act, but perhaps the prologue to a titanic struggle between democracy and violent authoritarianism in America. Long after Donald Trump is gone, we'll be dealing with the movement of violent, neo-fascist elements who come very close to knocking over the U.S. government. Wow. At least at least uh, Jamie, he or she, did not uh, resort to hyperbole. Whew, thank goodness. Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Barton Gelman already tried to define the threat more precisely in his Long Atlantic article, Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun, citing a June poll which reported just over 8% of Americans agreed Biden's election was illegitimate and violence is justified to restore Trump to the White House. Now, never mind that poll results results are notoriously unreliable, especially when trying to reduce complex questions to yes, no, and maybe answers. 
That was enough for Gelman and his sources to declare at least 21 million Americans are are committed insurrectionists. Now, this squishy finding, supported by no evidence of armed groups planning political mayhem, then becomes fact, as Gelman quotes an expert, in quotation marks, who states, the last time America saw middle-class whites involved in violence was the expansion of the KKK in the 1920s. Commentator John Heileman echoed and expanded this fact without challenge on NBC's Meet the Press, telling viewers, we've had political violence before, lynching many things over the course of time that African Americans have suffered, but this is 30 million people right now who are ready to take up arms. And probably because we've never seen signs of such violent intent, even the January 6th assault was arms-free, remember? Journalist Ron Brownstein assured that uh, assured CNN voters that the Let's Go Brandon chant, widely adopted by conservatives as code for F. Joe Biden, proves their thirst for insurrection. So how can Democrats and their allies embrace such a dark view of the American people? Well, believe it or not, history provides part of the answer. From their 19th century roots as the party run by southern planters and northern political machines to their embrace of technocratic progressivism in the 20th century, to their current status as the party of global elites, the Democratic Party's long been a hierarchical outfit where those at the top promised to act in the best interest of those below them. Especially in the South, this paternalism was fused with demagoguery as leaders kept voter in line, voters in line by playing on the fears of the Negro menace. In the years following World War II, Democrats gradually changed the groups that they pretended to speak for. Working-class whites were out once marginalized groups were in, but their DNA remained the same. They continued their uneasy relationship with the give-and-take of American democracy. Convinced that their policies were unassailable, they argued that moral failings, stupidity, racism, and greed explained why we have two parties. And they began using the exact same language that had once been deployed against blacks to demonize Republicans. Today's warnings of rampant white supremacy and conservative insurrection are updated versions of their ugly rhetoric revolving slave revolts. Now, in fairness, Republicans have engaged in many of the tactics ascribed to them. But their historic embrace of limited government power has usually restrained their impulse to direct people's lives. I guess the bottom line is America is a fractured nation, so we need to be clear-eyed about the sources of this division. But instead of providing insight, ugly smears passing as wisdom among the Democrats are just adding fuel to the fire. In their quest for power... They seem willing to burn down the whole house. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're into wrong think, and I assume that by listening to this show, you're at least wrong think curious, you might want to subscribe to my daily show notes. It's not that I have so much interesting stuff to say, but I do throw in some great articles and great commentaries from people who I have found to be trusted sources of wrong think. Here's the thing. Most of those sources of wrong think are very nonpartisan. That's part of why I like to consider what they have to say. I don't... I don't like the Republicans any more than I like the Democrats. But right now, the Democrats are in power, and at least at the very top of their political food chain, it appears that uh, the folks who are up there making decisions are working to consolidate power and to put a target on everybody who may not be 
in lockstep with them as quick as they possibly can. And it's dangerous. And we'll be talking more about how they have exploited, you know, January 6th as one of those ways to uh, to advance their purposes without having to resort to the truth. So I I try to steer towards information that's as credible, as principled as possible. But my main goal here is to let's take a good factual, even if it's a hard look at uh, what's going on. Some of these things are kind of unpleasant. And then decide from there, what can I do within my sphere of influence to influence things for the better? Because the end goal here is, look, I just, I want people to be free. I want them to be able to choose the path that they're going to take. I don't want to control you. I don't want you controlling me. If we can find some middle ground there, we're going to be just fine. But the the people who have control issues, the people who have a controlling nature, they get so upset when someone dares to live without their license. Let's, uh, let's give an example of some of the negative consequences of that. Okay, I've been very much on board with the idea that lockdowns are about the worst thing that could have happened in the pandemic. And I think that the facts have actually borne this out pretty well. And there's a lot of harm to our freedoms, which for starters was, uh, was one of the reasons I stood up and said, I can't, I can't go along with this. We've also seen immense economic harm, mental health consequences as well. Well, here's another reason lockdowns and mandates have been especially destructive, and that is pandemic babies are showing developmental delays, even if their mothers didn't have COVID. This is from studyfinds.org, and I got to tip my hat to my researcher, Ruben, for sending this my way. Um, I, I do love it when my audience sends me articles and says, have you, have you seen this? Might you want to mention this? Ruben is especially good at this. The article says babies born during the first year of the pandemic are displaying less social and motor skills than other children born prior to the health crisis. Now, concerningly, researchers from Columbia University's Irving Medical Center say they're noticing this in young children, regardless of whether their mothers had COVID-19 or not. At six months of age, the infant scored lower on social and motor development tests in comparison to babies born before the start of the global pandemic in March 2020. Now, the study authors suspect maternal stress due to lockdowns and worrying over work and health issues may be responsible for this change. Lead investigator Dr. Danny Dumitriou in a university release said infants born to mothers who have viral infections during pregnancy have a higher risk of neurodevelopmental deficits. So we thought we would find some changes in the neurodevelopment of babies whose mothers had COVID during pregnancy. We were surprised to find absolutely no signal suggesting that exposure to COVID while in utero was linked to neurodevelopmental deficits. Rather, being in the womb of a mother experiencing the pandemic was associated with slightly lower scores in areas such as motor and social skills, though not in others, such as communication or problem-solving skills. And these results suggest that the huge amount of stress felt by pregnant mothers during these unprecedented times may have played a role. So I guess one of the big lessons here is that small changes could lead to major health impacts later. These findings that they're talking about came from a review of 255 babies born in the New York area between March and December 2020. Now, Dimitriou says, these were not large differences, meaning we didn't see a higher rate of actual developmental delays in our sample of a few hundred babies just small shifts in average scores between the groups. But these small shifts warrant careful attention because at the population level, they can have significant public health impact. 
We know this from other pandemics and natural disasters. Viral illnesses during pregnancy can increase the risk of neurodevelopmental delays in children. They can trigger the mother's immune system, which in turn affects fetal brain development. Dimitriou, who's also a pediatrician in the Well Baby Nursery at New York Presbyterian Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital, says the developmental trajectory of an infant begins before birth. With potentially millions of infants who've been exposed to COVID in utero, and even more mothers just living through the stress of the pandemic, there is a critical need to understand the neurodevelopmental effects of the pandemic on future generations. So the team analyzed questionnaires given to each parent to evaluate aspects of their infant's development. Nearly half of the mothers in the study had COVID at some point during their pregnancies, with most being asymptomatic or only experiencing mild symptoms. Results show no differences in the scores between infants whose mothers had COVID and those with healthy mothers throughout their pregnancies. However, the average scores in social and gross and fine motor skills among pandemic-era babies were lower than 62 pre-pandemic infants born at the same hospitals. And the findings apply to both infants of mothers with and without COVID-19. Dimitriou says, we want parents to know that the findings in our small study don't necessarily mean this generation will be impaired later in life. This is still a very early developmental stage with lots of opportunities to intervene and get these babies onto the right developmental trajectory. Now, researchers add that pandemic-related anxiety may be the trigger for these developmental changes, or differences, rather. However, the study published in the journal JAMA Pediatrics did not measure levels of maternal stress during pregnancy. And apparently previous research has found that maternal stress in the earliest stages of pregnancy has a significant impact on socio-emotional functioning in newborns. Dr. Dimitriou's team identified a similar trend. Infants whose mothers were in the first trimester at the height of the pandemic. These were the infants that had the lowest neurodevelopment scores. Now, other factors, including fewer play dates, altered interactions with stressed caregivers, may explain why babies born during the pandemic have weaker social and motor skills. The researchers plan to follow the infants in long-term studies. Their group was among the first to discover pregnant mothers cannot pass COVID to an unborn child. So I got a link to this article in the show notes. You can check this out for yourself. Look, this, is, this isn't uh, you know, trying to assign blame to anybody, but just kind of an interesting fallout. I mean, we've, we've heard a lot about the economic repercussions, right? The, the many businesses that have failed, the, the way that isolation under lockdowns has driven people to um, substance abuse <clears throat> and, and suicide and, and other, uh, you know, very undesirable mental health outcomes. Not to mention, I think I may have mentioned a thing or two about, uh, you know, the, the subsequent loss of freedoms that we've suffered under various lockdown and mandate policies. But who would have thought this is something that if, if it's taking place has effect on the child in the womb before they're even born. And I know in some circles it's like, Brian, it's a fetus. And it's just an obligate parasite and clump of cells and. I don't know. This kind of this kind of research kind of makes you wonder if maybe there isn't something pretty important happening during that time that, you know, the fetus is is in the womb there. So what's the solution? Well, I'm not sure. 
but certainly awareness couldn't hurt. <laughs> At least being aware that, you know, uh, th- there are intended and unintended consequences. Politicians tend to focus only on the intended ones and ignore the unintended. But I'd like to think that uh, the net they cast to try to, you know, protect us, I'm putting that in air quotes, protect us from, you know, COVID, has brought some things that uh, we would all be better off without. Sadly, politicians seem determined that they're just going to they're going to double down on this. I don't know. Maybe they can't admit they were wrong. Maybe they actually are afraid they will be held accountable. Maybe they should be held accountable. But let's not let them get away with pushing us back into this kind of a cage ever, ever again. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. One of my great sponsors is lifesavingfood.com. I've got a link in the show notes. If you click on it, it'll take you right to the website. And you can begin looking over their inventory of food storage, emergency preparedness supplies, grab-and-go bags, things that could be very handy if you ever found yourself living in a time of uncertainty or instability. Now, that's purely hypothetical. If that ever were to happen, wow, it would be nice to have some of those things. And something you need to be aware of is, like the price of everything else, the cost of food storage is actually going up as well. In fact, there's a pretty decent hike headed our way starting on February 1st. So I'm not trying to scare you into buying. I'm not trying to tell you, you know, don't think this orange just sign here. You know, I'm trying to get you all hyped up on adrenaline. Come on, come on. You know you want this car. Sign right now. I'm just saying that these are some of the best prices you're going to find. Take advantage of it. My listeners get a 15% discount. They get uh, no sales tax and free delivery. So there's a little added incentive if you need something to kind of sweeten the deal for you. Lifesavingfood.com. Now, I like to come back to principles. It's, it's fun to talk about the controversies, but it's better to also understand that at the bottom of every controversy, there's always a principle that's at stake. And you don't have to be carrying a grudge in order to recognize that the relationship the government and the people has, between the government and the people, rather, has shifted drastically in the last couple of years. Judge Andrew Napolitano spells out some of the chilling lessons of COVID-19 and why they matter, As we move forward, he says, during the past 18 months, the relationship of the American people to the government has changed radically as the Constitution's failure to restrain the federal and state governments and protect personal liberty has become manifest. Napolitano says, we know that for the past 100 years, the growth of the federal government has been exponential. And we know that while formally the formally the Constitution still exists, functionally, It has failed miserably as the deterioration of personal liberty since the spring of 2020 has been as grave as the losses of freedom in the last 100 years. Now, he says, I'm using 100 years as the benchmark because it marks the completion of the federal government's takeover by the Theodore Roosevelt Republicans and Woodrow Wilson Democrats, who collectively comprised the progressive movement. In a short 15 years, this movement brought us the useless World War I, the destructive popular election of senators, 
the corrupt Federal Reserve, the theft of property called the income tax, and the unconstitutional administrative state. The war killed millions for naught. The popular election of senators undermined state sovereignty. The Federal Reserve destroyed economic freedom. The federal income tax legalized theft. And the administrative state created an unconstitutional fourth branch of government, experts answerable to no one. Yet the iron fist of totalitarian government visited upon the American people in the name of COVID-19 has struck at the heart of the Constitution and landed heavy blows on average Americans in far more acute and direct ways. So let's get to the principles at stake. Here's the backstory. Judge Napolitano says when Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence in 1776 that our rights come from God via our humanity, he and his colleagues set the 13 colonies on a path toward a limited government based upon the consent of the governed. The Declaration proclaimed that the sole moral function of government is to protect life, liberty, and property. In 1776, the colonial governments here consisted of governors appointed by the British king and popularly elected legislatures chosen by the adult, white, landowning males who bothered to vote. And he says, I say bothered to vote because the colonists knew that their legislatures were largely subject to the governors. The same colonists who supported the idea of secession hated the colonial governors as they more frequently than not bypassed the legislatures and issued edicts that they then enforced as if they were laws. The practice of issuing gubernatorial edicts became so unpopular that 10 of the 13 colonies amended their constitutions in 1776 and 1777 to to define more precisely the principle of separation of powers. The history of the Revolutionary War reflects two wars, a war of violence against the king's soldiers and a war of ideas to persuade reluctant colonists of the value of personal liberty. Now, the principal instrument of the war of ideas and the one that James Madison embedded into the Constitution in 1787 was the separation of powers. The separation of powers, which the late Justice Antonin Scalia called the backbone of the American Constitution, mandates that only the legislature can write laws, only the executive can enforce them, and only the judiciary can interpret them. The immediate purpose of the separation is to enable any one of the branches to be a check on the other two, so that by tension and even jealousy, no one branch could exceed the powers granted to it by the Constitution. If the president wrote laws, the courts would invalidate them. If Congress interpreted laws, the president and the courts would ignore it. If the courts hired folks to enforce laws, Congress would not fund their salaries. The ultimate purpose of the separation is to prevent tyranny and thereby preserve liberty. Now, to assure that the separation of powers worked at the state level, Madison wrote the Guarantee Clause into the Constitution. The Supreme Court has ruled that it guarantees the same separation of powers in the states as is required of the feds. Now, back to the horrors of the past 18 months. Napolitano says during that time, hundreds of edicts have been issued by mayors and governors and a few by former President Donald Trump and President Biden. None has the force of law, and each is a legal nullity for the simple reason that only legislatures can enact standards of behavior that carry punishments for noncompliance, otherwise known as laws. Well, what about the legislature of New York, which gave away some of its powers to the governor? See, that too is unconstitutional. 
as the Supreme Court has ruled that the branches of government cannot cede away or exchange powers, and when they do so, it is a legal nullity. He says, I'm not surprised when the government thumbs its nose at the Constitution that its agents and officers have sworn to uphold and at the legal theories upon which it's based. After all, the Constitution was written to keep the government off the people's backs. No wonder the government hates it. He says, I'm surprised and terrified when the great mass of people acts as sheep when they reject the values of America's founding documents and they ignore the history and courage that's undergirded personal liberty in our once free society. He says, let's get this straight. The executive branch of the federal government and nearly all states has told Americans how to live, dress, work, travel, attend church, run their businesses, and control their bodies in defiance of the Constitution and the people, yearning for more, of, yearning more for a false sense of security than the reality of freedom. Yeah, the people bowed down and said yes, because they wanted that security. So does the government work for us or do we work for the government? How you answer that question is going to determine how well you understand civics. Do we still have a functional constitution? Can freedom so bitterly fought for and arduously won be this easily dissipated? Now for people who've actually put in the time to study the principles on which the constitution is is based, the principles and practices upon which liberty is based. Those are some really hard questions. And they force us to confront some really ugly facts. In fact, uh, Judge Napolitano says the answers to these questions are too repugnant for this American who weeps for liberty to articulate. I don't think he's thrown up his hands and given up, but it does seem like a daunting thing to, to, to acknowledge. We have lost so much in the last couple of years. And if you actually want to expand that view even to the last 100 years, yeah, we've lost an awful lot. And yet for most of us, we have this normalcy bias that, you know, causes us to approach it like, well, you know, things were supposed to shift and change. And, you know, this is this is just kind of the natural evolution of things. I guess the, the political Darwinists among us are like, no, 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 this is just survival of the fittest, you know, the politically fittest. But the crazy thing is the principles of freedom are not something that sprang into existence, you know, based on the founding fathers' generation and, you know, what they were able to accomplish. They drew upon thousands of years of recorded human history to inform the way that they created our system of government for the maximum amount of freedom, the maximum amount of liberty. That was the goal. You know, if you, if you were to try to sum up what were they trying to accomplish with the way that they, first of all, seceded from Great Britain and then set up their own system of governance to protect their God-given rights. Liberty was the goal. But along the way, we have lost our taste for it. And I think that that's directly connected to uh, the loss of our understanding of the principles and practices on which it's based. So as much as it may be tempting to say, therefore, we must vote with even greater purpose and greater vigor than we have before, I think we need to take a couple steps back and improve our understanding of what those principles and practices of liberty actually are, know them and understand them for ourselves so well that we cannot be persuaded into giving them up for some perceived short-term gain. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. It's no secret that there have been many, many people fleeing to the Intermountain West. And if you're one of those people and you are landing in the great state of Utah, you will definitely be looking for someone to somewhere to rest your weary head. So if you're looking for a home, you'll know that it's a pretty hot real estate market right now. I don't think it's slowed down one bit. People are swooping in. They are buying things up for cash. You don't have time to waste when you find the home of your dreams. Now, this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She clearly understands what the lenders need. She understands what the borrowers need. And she is the one you want on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. So if you want to be squared away before you go shopping for that dream home, from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're located in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street. Call 435-703-4522. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Well, everybody who steered clear of their television set yesterday was wise to do so. I talked to a couple of people who made the mistake of flipping on the TV and went, oh my gosh. The wallowing in January 6th was epic. It was, it was unimaginable. And Glenn Greenwald says the histrionics and melodrama around January 6th are laughable, but he says they serve several key purposes. Glenn Greenwald says the number of people killed by pro-Trump supporters at the January 6th Capitol riot <clears throat> is equal to the number of pro-Trump supporters who brandished guns or knives inside the Capitol. And that is the same number as the total of Americans who, after a year, a full year of Democrat-led DOJ conducting what's heralded as the most expansive federal law enforcement investigation in history, have been charged with inciting insurrection, sedition, treason, or conspiracy to overthrow the government as a result of the riot one year ago. Coincidentally, it is the same number as Americans who ended up being criminally charged by the Mueller probe of conspiring with Russia over the 2016 election and the number of wounds, grave or light, which AOC, who finally emerged at night to assure an on-edge nation that she was okay while waiting in an office building away from the riots from the riot at the Rotunda, sustained on that solemn day. Are you getting the picture? The number is zero. But just as these rather crucial facts do not prevent the dominant wing of the U.S. corporate media and Democratic Party leaders from continuing to insist that Donald Trump's 2016 election victory was illegitimate due to his collusion with the Kremlin, it also doesn't prevent January January 6th from being widely described in those same circles as an insurrection or an attempted coup, an event as traumatizing as Pearl Harbor. Remember, there was 2,403 people killed in that attack or the 9-11 attack. 2,977 dead as the gravest attack on American democracy since the mid-19th century Civil War, where 750,000 people died. Yeah, they might be exaggerating just a little bit. The Huffington Post's White House reporter, S.V. Date, said it was wrong to compare 1-6 to 9-11 because the former, the three-hour riot at the Capitol, was a 1,000% worse. 
And we all know that the media is a million times less likely to exaggerate than anybody else out there. Right? All right. Glenn Greenwald says, look, when it comes to melodrama, histrionics, and exploitation of fear levels from the 1-6 riot, there's never been any apparent limit. And yesterday, the one-year the one anniversary of that three-hour riot, uh, you know, there's no apparent end in sight. He says, too many political and media elites are far too vested in this minimalist narrative, or maximalist narrative, rather, for them to relinquish it voluntarily. Greenwald says, the orgy of psychodrama today was so much worse and more pathetic than I expected. And he says, and I expected it to be extremely bad and pathetic. So here are some examples. House Democrats waited their turn on the House floor to talk to Dick Cheney as a beacon for American democracy, reported CNN's Edward Isaac Dover. One by one, Democrats are coming over to introduce themselves to former VP Dick Cheney and shake his hand, added ABC News' Ben Siegel. Nancy Pelosi gravely induced Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast of Hamilton to sermonize and to sing about the importance of American democracy. The Huffington Post's senior politics reporter, Igor Bobik, unironically expressed gratitude for the four-legged emotional support professionals roaming the Capitol this week, helping officers, staffers, and reporters alike, meaning therapy dogs. And yesterday, CNN's Kai's Hunt announced, tomorrow's going to be a tough day for those of us who were there or had loved ones in the building. Assuming their loved ones weren't named uh, Ashley Babbitt, of course. Anyway, he said, thinking of all of you and finding strength, knowing I'm not alone in this. Unsurprisingly, but repellently, Kamala Harris yesterday compared... January 6th to September 11th. Now that the January 6th riot was some sort of serious attempted insurrection or coup was laughable from the start, says Glenn Greenwald. And it's become even more preposterous with the passage of time and the emergence of more facts. Look, the United States is the most armed, militarized, and powerful regime in the history of humanity. The idea that a thousand or so Trump supporters, largely composed of Gen X and boomers who had been locked in their homes during a pandemic, three of whom were so physically infirm that they dropped dead from the stress, posed anything approaching a serious threat to overthrow the federal government of the United States, is such a self-evidently ludicrous assertion that any healthy political culture would instantly expel someone suggesting it with a straight face. He says putting the events of January 6th into their proper perspective is not to dismiss the fact that it was a lamentable event, any more than opposing the exploitation of 9-11 and the exaggeration of the domestic threat of Muslim extremism, which he spent a full decade doing, meaning that one was denying the heinousness of that attack, or that people took it as that. The day after the January 6th riot, he says, I wrote in this space that the introduction of physical force into political protest is always lamentable, usually dangerous, and except in the rarest of circumstances that are plainly inapplicable here, unjustifiable. And he says, I still believe that to be the case. There was nothing virtuous about the January 6th riot. But it is typically the case that fear-mongering and deliberate exaggeration of threats has an element of truth to them. Al-Qaeda and ISIS really did want to carry out mass casualty events on U.S. soil. COVID is a fatal virus that can kill people and has done so around the world. 
There are right-wing extremists in the U.S. bent on using violence to advance their political agenda, just as there are left-wing extremists and anarchist insurrectionary movements and many others eager to do the same. More destruction was caused by the latter than the former over the last two years, to say nothing of the dozens of journalists physically assaulted by individuals participating in Antifa protests. He says far too many centers of political and economic power benefit from an exaggerated and even false narrative about January 6th to expect it ever to end. And I think he's right. Look, I I remember September 11th. That was a day that I don't think anybody who was paying attention and ha- I happened to be, you know, on the air that day. And so I remember it was that consumed everything that we were doing. We dropped everything that we were doing. We were carrying the network coverage. I I remember the amazement of watching everybody within the office building where the radio station was located just kind of migrating to our studio and standing there watching the television and listening to the news feed with us silently. It was really an impactful day. And yet, it was exploited by those in power The Patriot Act was introduced. We became a national surveillance state, not just focused on Al-Qaeda and, you know, others out there who are trying to wish us harm, but turned inward, focused on the American people. That was probably the moment where my eyes came open when I realized that all those conservatives, all those George W. Bush, you know, conservatives that I had cheered on just a little bit earlier, you know, when he had been elected in 2000, were just as power-hungry and just as statist as their Democratic counterparts. It was a bitter pill to swallow, but I'm better for having faced that reality. And there was was a time when the anniversary of 9-11 would come along and the observances, you know, um, they were very somber and sometimes, you know, maybe borderline wallowing in self-pity. But it really was a, a traumatic event that most of us watched unfold. In no way does it compare to what took place a year ago at the United States Capitol? But I can just about guarantee you, the people who are in power right now will continue to milk this and will continue to hold observances. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if if they start trying to lobby for some kind of a holiday. You know, we've got to shut down the schools. We've got to close the banks. We've got to make sure everybody knows. Close down the national parks. Make sure that they remember this somber day when absolutely no one died at the hands of the mob and one person was shot to death by a frightened Capitol Hill police officer. Whoops. That doesn't sound nearly as scary as their version, but it's important we get the facts right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I trust that you've come to revel in wrong think. And that's exactly what we do here on a daily basis. Very grateful to have you as part of my audience. And, uh, you know, to be a wrong thinker doesn't really require much. In fact, all it really requires is a desire to understand the truth. 
Not to sit back like a baby bird with your mouth open going, you're waiting for somebody to regurgitate pre-digested facts into your mouth. So in a nutshell, I trust you to make up your own mind. And to that end, I spend my days combing the the information superhighway and every resource that I can to find good, credible, nonpartisan information that will help you better understand the world as well as help me better understand it. And then you get to make up your mind what to do with that information. There's no requirement that you have to agree with me. In fact, sometimes it's healthy to not agree and to question these things out. But I'm all for open and honest discussion, and I hope that you'll find something worthwhile in what I have to share with you this hour. I've got some great sponsors who make the show possible. They include GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, SewingandQuiltingCenter.com is actually their website. HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So I wanted to start with uh, if you had any doubts about how certain members of the political class are exploiting their so-called insurrection for some perceived advantage, this is something you should chew on. Because this is, you know, there, there's all the emoting and stuff that takes place before the, the television cameras. They did a lot of that yesterday. A very somber, you know, uh, memorial service or vigil, I should say, held on the steps of the Capitol. I mean, this is, this is political theater at its finest. But Jonathan Turley is reporting that some Democratic groups and commentators are now calling for the, disqualif- calling for the disqualification of many Republican candidates to save democracy. It is so important that we save democracy that we must destroy this democratic system and invalidate any candidates who are not us. Gee, where have we seen that kind of thing before? I'm sorry, we had to destroy the village in order to save it. It kind of, kind of sounds the same. Jonathan Turley says, This year, the Biden administration joined many in the United States in criticizing the mass disqualification of 583 candidates in Iran by the Guardian Council. The Iranian elections, like elections in other countries like China and Venezuela, are democratic only in the most artificial sense. You can freely vote from a pre-selected list of candidates. Now, don't laugh too hard because we are rapidly approaching that in our own way. And yes, that even trickles down to the state and sometimes the local level, depending on you know how corrupt the organizations can be. Turley says electoral disqualification systems are generally anathema to democratic values. But some in the United States are now toying with the idea for the 2020 or 2024 elections. While more modest than the Iranian model, he says the Democratic calls for disqualification are just as dangerous. And what's most maddening is that this anti-Democratic effort is cloaked in Democratic doublespeak. This week, Democratic lawyer Mark Elias predicted that 2022 would bring a renewed interest in disqualifying Republican members from from office based on an obscure Civil War era provision. Now, Elias, the former Hillary Clinton campaign general counsel, is a well-known figure in Washington who's been prominently figured in the ongoing investigation of special counsel John Durham. Elias has founded a self-described pro-democracy group that challenges Republican voting laws and pledges to shape our elections and democratic institutions for years to come. Yes, in the age of rage, says Jonathan Turley, nothing says democracy like preventing people from running for office. 
Elias and others are suggesting that rather than defeat Republicans at the polls, Democrats in Congress could disqualify the Republicans for supporting or encouraging the January 6th insurrection. Now, I feel duty-bound to remind you of the hundreds of people rounded up, many of whom are still sitting in filthy jail cells in Washington, D.C., awaiting trial. Not one has been charged with insurrection. So while they may throw that word around, you know, you may think that, uh, wow, it's, it was really serious if it was an insurrection. So serious that not one person has been charged with that crime. Last year, Turley says Democratic members called for the disqualification of dozens of Republicans. One, Representative Bill Pascrell of New Jersey, demanded the disqualification of the 120 House Republicans, including House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, for simply signing a friend-of-the-court brief, or amicus brief, in support of an election challenge from Texas. Now, these members and activists have latched upon the long-dormant provision in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Disqualification Clause, which was written after the 39th Congress convened in December 1865, and many members were shocked to see Alexander Stevens, the Confederate vice president, waiting to take a seat with an array of other former Confederate senators and military officers. Justin Reed of the North Carolina Supreme Court later explained, the idea was that those who had taken an oath to support the Constitution and violated it ought to be excluded from taking it again. So members drafted a provision that declared, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or an elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, under any state or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Well then, (laughs) by declaring the January 6th riot an insurrection, some Democratic members of Congress and liberal activists hope to bar incumbent Republicans from running. Even support for court filings is now being declared an act of rebellion. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi helped fuel this movement before January 6th even occurred by declaring that Republicans supporting election challenges were subverting the Constitution by their reckless and fruitless assault on our democracy, which threatens to seriously erode public trust in our most sacred democratic institutions and to set back our progress on the urgent challenges ahead. Well, you want to talk about some political doublespeak. Jonathan Turley says, look, January 6th was a national tragedy. He says, I publicly condemned President Trump's speech that day while it was being given, and I denounced the riot as a constitutional desecration. However, it has not been treated legally as an insurrection. Those charged for their role in the attack that day are largely facing trespass and other less serious charges rather than insurrection or sedition. That's because this was a riot that was allowed to get out of control by grossly negligent preparations by Capitol Police and congressional officials. And while the FBI launched a massive national investigation, it did not find evidence of an insurrection. And I would remind you that we still haven't received any satisfactory answers on how many of the people participating in that uprising or that unrest were actually federal agents. For some reason, the feds don't want to talk about that. Gee, I wonder why. 
Turley says, with an ominous midterm election approaching, much of the effort among Democrats on the Hill and in the media has been to keep the enmity alive from January 6th. In what seemed an almost hopeful plea, the New York Times recently declared, every day is now January 6th. Well, of course, because you're milking that thing like a Holstein. (laughs) It makes this tragedy sound like the political equivalent of a year-round Christmas store. Every day should involve a renewed gift of reminiscence and rage. But he says the saddest aspect of this politicization of the January 6th riot is that many of us wanted a full, transparent, and apolitical investigation. House Republicans rejected that idea, but there remain many questions to be answered, which has not happened. Instead, we have an effort to encode the notion of an actual insurrection through a mantra-like repetition. The Constitution, fortunately, provides or demands more than, more than proof simply by repetition. So, chanting in unison ain't going to carry it. In this case, it requires an actual rebellion. The clause the Democrats are citing was created in reference to a real war in which over 750,000 people died in combat. The Confederacy formed a government, an army, a currency, and carried out diplomatic missions. Conversely, January 6th was a protest that became a small riot. Now, that's not meant to diminish legitimate outrage over the day. It was reprehensible, says Turley, but only a rebellion in the most rhetorical sense. So, the people who, who profit and traffic in rage are out there doing what they do. And he says, we are all poorer for it. I guess the cautionary tale is is don't get caught up in the hype. Own your worldview. Stay clear and independent in your thinking. And maybe you'll decide I'm going to be a lot less dependent on politics generally. Spare me the melodrama. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. You may have noticed under my sponsor links that uh, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah is one of my sponsors. And there's something I wanted you to know about uh, for the month of January... They are offering free pickup and delivery during January on sewing and long arm machines that need service. Yeah, they not only sell the machines, but they service them as well. And they're offering free delivery on all products purchased off their website if you live in Washington County. Now, look, they're even willing to work with you. If you live in Mesquite or Cedar, they say, give us a call. We'll work something out. And they also have wonderful teachers who can teach you how to use your sewing machine, your serger, your long-arm quilting machine. Tammy and Vernie are two of those teachers. Tammy has years of experience teaching and doing clothing tailoring. Vernie's an expert with the embroidery machines. This is wonderful stuff. You want to learn how to use these machines to their full potential? Sewingandquiltingcenter.com is where you can go to learn more about this wonderful family-owned business. They're right there in St. George. I'm very happy to have them as a sponsor of this program. Now, from time to time, I share topics that cause people to experience uh, feelings of mild panic, and I'm about to do that. So uh, do do you have a friend close by to hold your hand? Are you sitting down? Here's something I'd like to share with you, and that's the concept of justice without the state. 
See, a lot of people have a knee-jerk reaction. No, it's not possible. That's why we need the state, to make sure that we have justice. Well, Doug Casey has a very enlightening take on the failures of the justice system as well as a viable solution. And I'm not trying to be, you know, dramatic when I say this, but the more I look around me, the more it appears that in many cases, justice primarily serves the interests of the state. And that's how you can know that you are... Uh, you are seeing a police state beginning to encroach upon your life. International Man interviewed Doug Casey and asked, what is the role of a justice system in a society and what should the state have to do with it? Now, Doug Casey says, in my view, what really holds a society together isn't the laws enacted by legislatures or dictators, but peer pressure, social opprobrium, moral approbation, In general, society's pretty self-regulating. It's why people pay their bills at restaurants, even though there's not a cop at the door. Criminals are the exception, not the rule, although it must be said they naturally gravitate towards the government. When someone commits a crime, he says there's a trial to determine what harm has been done, who should be compensated, and so forth. Courts determine these things, but he says, I would like to argue that the state is not a necessary part of any of this. Society, like markets, tends to be self-ordering. With a minimal night watchman sort of state like that described by Ayn Rand, the proper role of government is simply to defend you from force and fraud. This implies an army to defend you from force external to your society, a police force to defend you from force within your society, and a court system to allow the adjudication of disputes without resorting to force. And Casey says, I could live in a society like that. It would be a vast improvement over what we have now. A proper court system with either arbitrators or judges or jury systems would be part of it. But he says, I'd go on to argue that juries and courts should be privatized. Now, again, there's a number of people just had a little knee-jerk reaction. How can you privatize a jury? And that's the question asked by international men. What would a privatized justice system look like? Would it have juries? Doug Casey answers, well, there might be either arbitrators or juries or both. The jury should be composed of independent thinkers who aren't easily swayed by rhetoric or pressured by groupthink. Today, however, they're just random people who aren't clever enough to avoid jury duty. In theory, juries could counter the tremendous power of judges. Judges today are either elected or appointed. Now, if elected, they have to campaign like any other politician and are subjected to the same perverse incentives any other politician is. If they're appointed, it can be even worse. Appointees are often just collecting political favors. While they're allegedly more independent, in many ways, he says they're even less accountable. So, in theory, a jury is a good counterbalance to the power of the judge. You need some way to weigh the facts and decide who's in the right. But the way juries work in the U.S. today is far from optimal. See, it used to be that a jury could easily overturn any law. The process was called jury nullification, and it was an effective way for the common people to keep legislators under control. Today, however, he says, it's really a dead letter. Today's juries amount to a form of involuntary servitude. You get your notice for jury duty, and you either have to serve whether you want to or not, or come up with excuses the state will deem to accept. Most productive people feel that they have more urgent priorities in their life than helping decide court cases that can go on for months. So the type of people who end up serving on juries these days generally have nothing better to do 
or for whom the trivial fee they pay is good money. Hardly the kind of person who should decide weighty matters, even perhaps life and death. In addition, he says many trials center on highly technical concepts and forms of evidence, that the people rounded up from the highways and byways are simply unqualified to interpret. Worse, there's the jury selection process called voir dire, or voir dire, rather. The notion is to give the attorneys of both sides the opportunity to remove a few individuals from the jury who might be biased against their case, thus ensuring a more unbiased jury. But he says, in practice, it's an interrogation process by which lawyers try to ensure they get a jury that will believe whatever they tell them. This usually means that anyone exhibiting the least bit of independent thinking or is prone to value justice over law enforcement will get removed and never serve on a jury. The result is that the quality of juries today is several standard deviations below what it should be. Any intelligent person has opinions. And in this day of the Internet, almost any other person's opinions are easy to find out. No matter which way your opinions lie up, line up, rather, one side or the other isn't going to like them in any case. So you won't make it past voir dire. Both the prosecution and defense like to see malleable jurors with easily influenced minds. As a result, the typical juror has no options other than those on the weather, sports, and American Idol. People who think in concepts are weeded out as troublemakers. Now, this process makes a shambles of the concept of a jury of your peers. The type of people they rope into jury duty wouldn't likely be the peers of anyone now reading this. In fact, he says, if I were facing a trial, I would much rather be tried by 12 people randomly selected out of a phone book than by the type of people who get selected for jury duty. So if we're to have juries, he says, they ought to be truly juries of our peers, people who can understand you and the facts pertaining to your case. But we're far from an ideal system. In fact, it's worse than arbitrary, given that most of those employed by the justice system work for the state. And that it's the state versus an individual in so many cases, there's a huge inherent bias on top of the whole problem with today's stacked juries. So he's then asked, what is an ideal justice system in your perspective? And Doug Casey says it would be a more equitable system if judges and jurors were professionals who had to compete with each other on the basis of their proven records of intelligence, fairness, speed, and low cost. The victim and the accused would mutually agree on the judge and jury or arbitrators. Now, separating justice and state would help eliminate the state's ability to prosecute phony, made-up crimes, especially crimes with no victims. There needs to be an actual victim to press charges if the state can't be party to a case. That alone would eliminate the wasted resources and the trashed lives resulting from the U.S.'s various wars against victimless crimes. No one could be criminally prosecuted for having unorthodox sexual preferences or using unpopular drugs, drinking on Sunday, or smoking in a private establishment, or for evading taxes. It might surprise Americans to know that tax evasion is a civil, not criminal matter in most countries. Now, i got to tap the brakes here because we are coming up on our own commercial break very quickly. Does that intrigue you, the idea of justice without the state? Would it surprise you to know that historically, it's happened before? 
Okay, just asking. I'm not trying to make anybody nervous, but I'm sure this topic is making a few folks just a little bit twitchy. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article here from, this is actually off the lourockwell.com website, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers, in that this is a news aggregator site, lots of great commentaries, lots of great blog entries from people who know their stuff and are really paying attention. I've followed Lou Rockwell for I don't know how many years now. Probably 23, 24 years by my count. It, go, it goes back to the early days. I think the first few days it was, it was dial-up internet when I started following him. But wow, what an amazing sight. This is an interview with Doug Casey carried out by International Man asking about the failures of the justice system and a viable solution, including privatized justice. And I realize that's a really foreign concept for a lot of folks. In fact, it's, it's one of those things that will make some people very uncomfortable because we've been raised to believe, that, well, if it's not done with, you know, the state as, as the driving force or the dynamic behind it, it just can't be legitimate. Well, here's what Doug Casey has to say. He reminds us that most legal actions focus on matters of tort and breach of contract. So it's important to keep laws simple and few so that ignorance of the law is impossible. Ideally, just two great laws. Number one, do all that you say you're going to do. Number two, don't aggress against other people or their property. Pretty well covers it. The point is, justice has to do with righting actual wrongs that have been done to people, not just enforcing laws or exacting arbitrary punishments. Today, justice means enforcing the will of politicians and bureaucrats. And a proper system of justice would focus on making the victim whole, not just arbitrarily punishing the aggressor. So with privatized justice, he says, someone would accuse another, both sides would choose an arbitrator, professional or otherwise, and those two arbitrators would agree on a third to make sure there were no tied votes. They would look at all the facts, not just the arbitrary subset of facts allowed by legal precedent and state machinations. That decision would not be about punishing anyone, but about making the harmed party whole again. And again, this this means that there has to be someone who can be objectively proven to have been harmed. So the key concepts here are justice and restitution, not punishment. Punishment, he says, if you actually think about it, rarely serves any useful purpose. It just gives vent to base and reactive emotions. Now, it may set a good example to deter future miscreants, but it definitely sets a bad example for society as a whole by institutionalizing and justifying cruelty. International Man then asks, Doug, is there any hope for the current justice system? And Doug Casey says, the whole system is highly politicized, which is only natural for something run by the state. Unfortunately, as the country increasingly looks to government as a solution, your only choice being to choose between the so-called right and left politics, well, he says that's going to make the current legal system even more dysfunctional in every way I can think of. The next question says, well, what are the implications of this for investors and businesses? Doug Casey says, I see more people being convicted under ridiculous applications of the securities laws, tax laws, and more. 
The only area where things are becoming more rational and freer is the area of drug laws. It's becoming clear that to even the dimmest legislators and jurists that they're as stupid and destructive as were those against alcohol during prohibition. In fact, almost all of the administrative laws of the myriad of three- and four-letter agencies, ATF, FTC, EPA, SEC, FDA, etc., etc., create bogus and even nonsensical crimes. Even if you aren't convicted, if you're targeted, it can cost you hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars in legal fees, plus time, lost business, and damaged reputation. He says the system has become rapacious and Kafkaesque. And as the state grabs more and more power with each passing crisis, the risk of attention from state operatives increases, even for innocent and honest people. And this trend is accelerating in a negative direction. Doug Casey says if history's any guide, things will get worse until we reach a genuine crisis. That's bad news for anyone with any wealth, especially if they have unpopular political views. Now that has very serious implications. Not just for people in business and for investors, but for society itself. He says, this is one of the reasons I'm so bearish on the prospects of the current world order. Not only are there decades-long distortions in the economy that have to be liquidated, but the whole legal system is rotten to the core. It needs to be scrapped. Someone needs to push the reset button and restore justice as its guiding principle. And that, too, is a distortion that can't be corrected easily or painlessly. Unfortunately, though, he says it's the very worst people, it seems, who have their fingers on the great reset button. That's pretty amazing. Now, I want to share something with you. I'm I'm including this in the show notes. Uh, I don't have a link to it, but I do have a a nice uh, image of a letter sent out from a merchant who was planning on attending the SHOT Show in Las Vegas. And I want to share this with you as an example of what it looks like to put your money where your mouth is. So if you have felt your principles being challenged and thought, how can I stand up for them? Here's one way that that might appear. This is a letter to SHOT Show leadership from Michael Hyatt, Hyatt, rather, owner of OT Defense out of Baker City, Oregon. And it says, after much thought, I'm withdrawing my attendance from SHOT 2022. I looked forward to attending in 2021 where I had a booth picked out in the new Caesars Forum. I was looking forward to attending in 2022 as well, but cannot in good conscience do so. I've tried to live my life honestly and always stand by my convictions, no matter the loss of friends, family, or financial gain. And while I seriously considered exhibiting in my booth and hoping there was no mask enforcement and was willing to get kicked out of the show if there was such enforcement, I've decided that it is not in the best interest of myself my business, or my customers to do such. Now, Micah Hyatt says, while some would say I should be grateful for the opportunity to attend, and we've been doing business with masks on for over a year now, he says, I would be giving up part of my honor by gratefully attending with a mask on. I have not worn a mask since this all started, outside my former work as a radiologic technologist at a hospital. I don't need to explain my reasons just as someone who's actually worried about COVID, but willing to attend a show with 30,000 plus people from all over the world with anything less than a mop suit on doesn't need to explain their logic and reasoning to me. He says, I fully realize this will likely result in a forfeiture of my funds, and I will not likely retain any points for a booth next year. 
I could have just called in sick, easy to do these days, the week before the show and then retained my booth points and even had my booth sitting there, unstaffed. But he says that would be a lie for my own gain, just as signing the 2022 SHOT Show participant waiver stating, I will comply with all posted policies and restrictions imposed by law would be a lie. So why would he do this? Well, Micah Hyatt says, Our country was founded on personal freedoms, and the firearms industry is at least, at least at the consumer level, made up of folks who believe in personal freedom. There exists today an obvious movement by our government to take away personal freedoms in the name of safety. And he says, It's my belief that participating in such minor loss of freedoms, by doing this, we are throwing open the door for further erosion of our freedoms, and this I will not help do. By the way, he finishes up with a quote here from Jordan Peterson. <clears throat> and this is something to think about. If you do not object when the transgressions against your conscience are minor, why presume that you will not fully participate when the transgressions get out of hand? Now, the funny thing about it is he shared uh, this letter actually was shared on a discussion board, AR15.com. And you would think with a name like AR15.com, man, that must be a pretty hardcore group of freedom lovers. I thought it was interesting. The first few replies to that was, ah, oh, what a drama queen. Look at this guy virtue signaling, blah, blah, blah. You know, he, he should have just, you know, shut up and gone along with it, or he shouldn't have taken this public. A lot of folks questioning his motive, and I think, you know, you complain about uh, the left is always after us. They're always sniping at us, but... Good heavens, you know, the political right is its own worst enemy for for that very reason. Well, this person is probably just doing this because they see some kind of advantage. I do know this. He's getting a lot of free advertising, at least from the people who who frequent to AR15.com. Not all of it's good attention, but P.T. Barnum would say, well, there's no such thing as, as bad publicity. But I want you to just seriously consider whether you're into guns or whether you're into masks or anything like that. At what point would you be willing to walk away from money and the possibility of exposure for your business in order to live up to a principle that you believe in strongly enough that you're just not going to you're not going to compromise one more inch? See, that's a decision every one of us has to come to on our own. <clears throat> and, and those who say, well, you know, if you wondered, what would you have done during uh, the times of slavery? Would you have fought for abolition of slavery? What would you have done during the rise of the Third Reich? Would you have stood up and, you know, fought against the, the Nazis? The answer is, if you're not standing up for the little things right now, it's a pretty good bet you wouldn't have done it when the things were really difficult and when it really would have counted. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks for hanging with me so far. I'll try not to scare you away in the final segment of the show today. (laughs) And, And I want you to understand... I may state things with confidence, but I am a guy who is simply trying to do his best to sort out fact from fiction and to try to speak the truth as as plainly and as bravely as I possibly can. But uh, but being human and actually just being me, I'm not going to get it right all the time. 
So I, I, I try to do what I hope is best by my audience. Sometimes I feel like, all right, I'm in the zone here. I can feel the sense of, of uh, it's clicked into place, and I really think I'm on target. And there are some days where I'm like, wow, I think all I did was just rant. <laughs> so I hope you're getting something of value from what I'm sharing with you. But I, I, I'm willing to acknowledge, yeah, there's times I'm going to swing for the fence and I'm going to miss. So thanks for being patient with me. Thanks for, for checking out my show notes, maybe subscribing to my show notes. It doesn't cost you anything. I'll just uh, send it right to your email inbox. But I really try to include things that will hopefully give you good food for thought, something that will provoke you to think more clearly and independently about the world around us. And I also throw in some pretty sick memes as well. That's one of the added benefits of uh, signing up for those uh, show notes. Now, I'm a believer in being mentally, materially, and spiritually prepared for unstable times in which we live. I've, I've always, well, I haven't always felt this way. I've started feeling that way, uh, especially about the time my first child arrived. But I think it's especially important as we see things getting weirder by the day around us. And one of the crazy things that I'm seeing right now, and this is of concern to me because I have a daughter who lives across the sea in Germany, and she um, she has described some of the the very stringent lockdown mentality that has taken hold there. And, you know, the Germans, this is going to sound like I'm picking on the Germans, but uh, the Germans are a very rule-following people. You know, the term heel clicker, uh, that, that kind of originated in that uh, that Prussian society and that, that Teutonic fondness for order. Well, click the heels, yes, sir. You know, yavol, yes, this will happen. I'm very concerned with what I see happening there. Because it affects one of my loved ones and, and her husband and her child. And I'm, I'm concerned for what I see happening in other first world nations. And actually, there's a writer by the name of Stasia Decker Ahmed who says, take a look at what's happening in other first world nations and then resist the urge to pretend that it can't happen here. So when you hear me talk about phrases like police state or say words like genocide, I know the immediate reaction most of us have is, well, now, that happened somewhere else, somewhere far away from you. It could never happen here. Or could it? Stasia Decker Ahmed says, look, it happened in the late spring when thousands of demonstrators took part in the Cultural Revolution. Students on campuses everywhere came together to make radical changes in the nation. The old ideas, customs, and beliefs had to be put away, and a shining new society ushered in. Young people marched in the streets, tore down signs and toppled statues. Media outlets throughout the country praised this unprecedented movement. Did this happen in Seattle, Portland, the streets of Chicago? No, this was Mao Zedong's cultural revolution that started in May 1966 and ushered in one of the bloodiest eras in China's history. This particular cultural revolution ended with millions being murdered. While what did happen in Seattle, Portland, and American cities in 2020 started because of George Floyd's death and primarily involved challenging racism and police brutality, it quickly escalated and evolved into so much more. In fact, one of the primary leaders of this movement referred to herself as a trained Marxist. Another activist tweeted, tear them down, referring to statues of Jesus and Christian churches. In 2020, BLM rioters burned a Bible and American flags in Portland and decapitated a statue of Jesus in Miami. 
Now, these comments and the actions of many of the protesters bear a striking resemblance to another movement beside Chairman, besides Chairman Mao's Marxist makeover of Chinese society. There was also the Bolshevik Revolution. Nearly 50 years before Mao made his move, Lenin's revolutionaries ushered in the first Marxist state. And while creating their socialist utopia, they went on to burn churches, execute priests, and ultimately kill millions once civil war ensued. While this rioting and burning that took place throughout 2020 diminished in 2021, the angry sentiments and striking division in our country have continued to grow. Brutal dictatorships and bloody revolutions have always been a part of the human condition and continue to take place around the globe. Yet Americans often think that extreme brutality, including persecution, will never happen here. Well, it can, and it will, if the vast majority remain asleep at the wheel of democracy and freedom. Jacqueline uh, Mira Kuk- I'm going to have to try her name twice. Mira Katete, an attorney and Rwandan uh, genocide survivor, has written the following about how genocide normally starts. Quote, As I always tell my audience when I speak on this topic, people do not just get up one day and want to systematically murder their neighbors. Genocide is always preceded, proceeded rather, by a number of steps, including state-sanctioned discrimination of the would-be target group, a dehumanization process in which the target group is portrayed as the other or the enemy, and a culture of impunity. End quote. Now, if that sounds eerily familiar... It's because it's currently happening in the United States in the form of cancel culture and the increasing censorship of voices and ideas that don't always line up with the mainstream worldview. The conditioning of the masses always proceeds persecution. I really think she means the word precedes, but okay, I'll quit quibbling here. It happens when people compare those who voted differently than they did did to terrorists or Nazis. It happens when Chase, the biggest bank in the country, refuses to do business with conservative groups. It happens when nearly all major institutions and platforms, including media, entertainment, academia, and tech companies, almost entirely promote far-left ideology and millions of conservatives feel they no longer have a voice. Now, there are many examples in recent years of individuals losing their jobs or having their businesses boycotted and getting their social media accounts canceled or suspended because they promoted conservative ideas, supported biblical standards, or refused to bow to the demands of woke culture. The dehumanization process of conservatives and traditional Christians as others and enemies is rapidly increasing, and the more it continues to happen, the more many in the media insist it isn't happening. Here the author says, a friend of mine recently stated that this can't go on much longer, that millions of Americans are going to stand up against cancel culture, censorship, and the marginalization of traditional values. And the author says, I nodded my head when she said it, but I don't think I really believed it. When you have a society that is already in the process of banning words, burning Bibles, and allowing four-year-olds to choose their gender, you have a society that has pretty much already jumped the shark. When you have millions who have sunk so far down the rabbit hole that they actually believe this is progress, you realize that Rome has been burning for a while now. After all, how many stood up against most of the persecution, brutality, and genocide when it occurred in Bosnia or Rwanda? How many stood up against Mao or Stalin? 
Sing a Little Louder is a movie based on the true story of an old man who, as a boy, witnessed the horror of the Holocaust from the safety of his church. As the cattle cars full of screaming Jewish prisoners rolled by on the train tracks near the church, parishioners simply sang louder to drown out their cries. If most people didn't stand up against the majority of atrocities that have occurred throughout history, what makes anyone think that people will stand up now for what amounts to so much uh, milder forms of persecution? No, we're not anywhere near genocide in America as I write this, she says. We're at the edge of where Muricatate says such things start. We're in the hatred, marginalization, and censorship stage. We're not currently seeing people dragged off to gulags or facing public torture. But as history teaches us, it never starts out that dramatically. It starts out small. It starts out where it's starting right now. And for these reasons, people should prepare themselves for what's likely to come in the not-so-distant future. Freedom of speech, religious liberty, the right to own property, the right to bear arms, these precious liberties may soon be gone or severely limited in the near future. What does all this have to do with COVID and all the lockdowns and mandates we've lived through in these recent years? Maybe nothing. Or maybe this is more of the division and dehumanization that so often leads to ultimately unspeakable atrocities. It's important to note that Australia has built a COVID quarantine camp. The Guardian reported November 30th of 2021, three individuals escaped from the Darwin Howard Springs COVID-19 facility. They were quickly recaptured. Across Europe, travelers now carry barcode vaccine passports on their phones. In Sweden, thousands have already received a chip implant in their hands with passport information. It doesn't take a genius to see where this is going and what may happen to those who refuse. How long until fines, quarantine camps, or worse measures arrive in the U.S.? Probably not long. So prepare spiritually, mentally, and materially. You may not have much time left. This is The Brian Hyde Show.